1: Good afternoon and happy Easter if you're celebrating quietly at home. Welcome to the Sunday edition of the Best of Fight back More of what you want to hear from the week that was. Since the Auditor General released a scathing report on Canada's pandemic preparedness on March 25th, the Chief Medical Officer has been defending her initial response to the pandemic. Dr. Teresa Tam insists it was not wrong and the domestic risk at that time for new coronavirus cases in Canada was relatively low. Critics dispute this argument. Libby Snymer was joined on Wednesday by the Auditor General, Karen Hogan, to discuss her findings.
2: Sympathize to some degree, it's hard or it's easy, I guess, to sit here now a year later and look back and be able to comment on what should have been done differently. Hindsight is, is, a, is a wonderful thing. And it is difficult in the moment um, to be able to make decisions. Uh, and our audit focused on uh, the pandemic preparedness and surveillance and border control measures uh, at, at the beginning stages of, of the pandemic. And what we found was that uh, the Public Health Agency of Canada was not as prepared uh, to respond uh, to a pandemic of this nature as as they should have been. And uh, one of those items was using a risk assessment tool that was not designed to consider pandemic risk, which is incorporates sort of a forward-looking uh, spreading kind of aspect. And and we highlighted that as one of four. Uh, weaknesses that we found in our audit.
3: Do you think that 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 department needs a complete overhaul or anything like that?
2: Well, that really wasn't the focus of our audit to look at, um, you know, how they were structured. Uh, I I think that they came into existence following a crisis and um, their mandate's a clear one. Uh, What they need to do is uh, place better value on um, acting on known issues uh, it's not an unknown uh, concern that we raise in so many of our audits and in various topics is, um, you know, no one wants to uh, invest in IT systems and some of those back office things like being prepared um, and a crisis just shows you the importance of all of that. And so um, I think it's just a matter of tackling those issues um, before we need to rely on it again. And I also think that that's why I recommended um, that. You know, a countrywide analysis when the pandemic's over needs to be done. A lot of this is key about sharing information between different levels of government. And as the Federal Auditor General, I can only look at federal programs and federal funding. So someone with a broader reach needs to look at the response across the nation and how we can do better next time.
3: Let's bring in Wesley Wark. He's an adjunct professor at the University of Ottawa who analyzed the risk assessments during the onset of the outbreak, and he has worked on the Auditor General's report. You have called Theresa Tam's uh, response to this as defending the indefensible.
4: Yes, I have. Um, And I was surprised by it, frankly. I I thought the Auditor General's uh, report into pandemic um, uh, response was a very strong and, and Excellent report. And, you know, one of the important things, Libby, about Auditor General's reports is that, you know, if they require a department or agency that's the subject of their study to respond in writing. And the Public Health Agency of Canada accepted all of the recommendations and findings, which is terrific. And they've, you know, promised to fix all of the range of problems that um, the Auditor General uh, identified, including around risk assessments and given themselves a timetable, maybe a slightly too leisurely timetable to do that, from my perspective, but at least they've given themselves a timetable to make those fixes. But then to have, you know, with all due respect to Dr. Tam and the you know, the terrific work she's done and the enormous pressures her office is under, then to have the chief public health officer and her deputy, you know, come out and say uh, in a press briefing that the risk assessments, you know, need to be more predictive in future, but weren't wrong. I mean, that just is, from my perspective, um you know, it, it, it's just the wrong kind of uh, approach to trying to defend the indefensible.
3: And so w- what's the bottom line on all of this?
4: The bottom line is we have to do better the next time. And, and we may not have a whole lot of time uh, to prepare for the next time. You know, we have to assume uh, it may not sound like great news, but we have to assume that the next pandemic is right around the corner. I mean, literally, you know, it could be next year. And so, uh, you know, we can't be leisurely about making these fixes.
1: Wesley Wark, adjunct professor at the University of Ottawa, who analyzed the risk assessments during the onset of the outbreak and worked on the Auditor General's report. And before him, the AG herself, Karen Hogan. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. Our strategy panelists weighed in on the Auditor General's less than complimentary report on Canada's pandemic response. The biggest issue detailed by A.G. Karen Hogan is around a lack of pandemic preparedness and underestimating the potential impact of the virus at the onset of the COVID-19 crisis. But our panelists were generally forgiving considering the unprecedented nature of this pandemic. While filling in for Libby Snymer on Tuesday, I was joined by Karen Stintz, CEO at Variety Village, Bob Richardson, Liberal Strategist and Senior Counsel to National Public Relations, and John Capobianco, Senior Vice President and Senior Partner at Fleischmann-Hillard High Road.
5: It's easy to kind of look back and and say what governments have done and have not done particularly well. And and there'll be a time, I think, when, when this pandemic is over where There'll be a lot of a lot of that kind of analysis as to what governments did well and what governments did wrong. I think the key thing here is that the two health organizations, um, both PHAC and then of course the Global Public Health Intelligence Network, were the ones that were, I think, most to blame, uh, according to the Auditor General, with respect to not taking the pandemic serious enough at the, at the early stages. Uh, PHAC not sort of realizing that once once the pandemic hit. How, how serious it was going to be, and, and, and I think that sort of gave the government sort of some some bad advice or bad counsel with respect to how they were going to obviously roll, out, roll this out. So, you know, I think that's an important thing that that is good to know, because if this ever happens again, God forbid, mm. uh, that this kind of stuff won't happen again. Um, but, you know, like, like I think that those are just, I think it's more just for learnings than anything else, and I think that's what we should be looking at, these kind of reports as uh, are such.
1: Bob, how are you looking at this AG report?
6: I think it's important to know that in Ottawa, the Ministry or the Department of Health is not an important department in the structure of the federal government. It's a terrible thing to say, but it's the truth. It's viewed as a Tier 2, Tier 3 department. Uh, it does not generally have usually a senior minister. And the public health agency would be viewed, quite frankly, in Ottawa as a bit of a backwater. Uh, and I think over the last 10 years, uh, there's been neglect there. There's no question about that. And it's reflected in the lack of preparedness. The option on health care is at the provincial level in this country. But the, but I think what this is showing us is that we just can't tolerate a situation where, you know, the federal uh, federal uh, health Canada is sort of asleep at the switch. So hopefully this report, uh, a, a number of things will get fixed as a result of it. The thing I would say though, is I'm not sure how useful it is in the middle of a pandemic, whether it's the provincial auditor going after the you know uh, the health ministry in Ontario or or, or this aud- uh, auditor general going after the federal agency. I am not sure how useful that is at this time. I think there's a time and a place for a comprehensive uh, independent review of how did we do and what what can we do better. I'm not sure the middle of the pandemic's terribly useful.
1: Karen, what are your thoughts about this AG report, such as it is? It, it, there's also a piece missing, right?
7: Which is the context. And if I if I try to remember back to last January, February, even March, you know, the World Health Organization wasn't declaring it as you know, something as critical. They, they were saying low risk, low risk, low risk. So. You know, whether we were at fault for taking the lead of what the World Health Organization was telling us to follow, perhaps, um, you know, there's no question that we let down our pandemic alert system and that it had been defunded over a period of years. And that's something that we need to pay attention to, because what what we didn't know is that the world actually relied on us to give them some information that we weren't providing. So I think that's good for us to know that we actually advocated a leadership role. Whether now we need to debate it, to you know, I, I don't know. Um, to Bob's point. But, but, you know, I think there's some context there because, you know, again, when I was living through this in January and February and March, I was like, what's going on over in China, right? Mm-hmm. And I didn't make that leap to what could possibly happen in my community. Like, I remember, not to take us off tangent here, but, you know, briefing my board on risk, risk assessment and, you know, my, I was briefing my board about, um, IT breaches and security breaches and potential theft of information. I didn't even think to talk about the pandemic because if, that's how low it was on my personal radar that we could actually be closed for over a year because of this pandemic. So, you know, I, I think it's what we know now. If we, of course, if we, if we had known now what we, sh- you know, potentially should have known then, but you know, we were even being praised for not closing our borders. And we were being praised for not halting flights from China, right? As, as, you know, as being good citizens of the world. And, you know, and looking back now, that's ludicrous. Like the first thing we should have done is stop flights internationally before we did anything else. But again, we didn't know.
1: Karen Stintz, CEO at Variety Village, Bob Richardson, liberal strategist and senior counsel to national public relations, and John Capobianco, senior vice president and senior partner at Fleishman Hillard High Road, Fight Back's Tuesday Strategy Panel. I'm Jane Brown, and this is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. Coming up after the break, the facts on the COVID vaccine by AstraZeneca.
0: You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Good isn't good enough. Make way for the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown on Zuma Radio. Welcome
1: back. Early this past week, the medical officers of health for all of the provinces and territories agreed to pause any use of the AstraZeneca COVID-19 vaccine for people under 55. The recommendation came from our National Advisory Committee on Immunization based on increased incidence of blood clotting in younger adult recipients of the AstraZeneca vaccine, mostly women in Europe. To find out about the seriousness of this new information, I was joined on Tuesday by Dr. Alan Baseman, epidemiologist, infectious disease specialist at the University Health Network.
8: This was a very challenging decision to make because on the one hand, there was that signal that there was an increased risk of clotting among the younger population that we got from Europe. And on the other hand, we have the realities of Canada, which is that we have very, generally very poor vaccine supply and we need all the vaccines we can get. And the second thing is that we're in the middle of the third wave and very rapidly increasing cases. So I think it's important for the public to recognize that they're putting a pause on the vaccination in that age group in order to have time to analyze the data and see if there's any additional risk that's been provided based on the data from Europe.
1: Okay, so I'm reading here the statement from the Council of Chief Medical Officers of Canada uh, of health sorry on the use of the AstraZeneca vaccine and it says that the decision the recommendation from Nasi is based on evidence of rare instances of vaccine induced prothrombotic immune thrombocytopenia or VIPIT following AstraZeneca vaccination reported in Europe with high or with associated high case fatality and related serious outcomes That sounds a bit dire.
8: Yeah, so this this, uh, signal that they saw from Europe, again, it was a very rare occurrence of this happening in the the younger population. It's basically a drug-induced or vaccine-induced, in this case, uh, complication where the platelets, which are responsible for forming clots, are rapidly consumed and cause clotting in places where there shouldn't be clotting very rapidly. And in this case of clotting, among all the other cases of clotting, is particularly dangerous. It has a, high, a relatively high mortality. So the risk is estimated currently to be something very low, maybe 1 in 100,000 or 1 in 150,000. So quite rare. And so the, the government wanted to pause things in order to look at that data and see, see how risky it is.
1: And, and why could you surmise, or do you know um, by evidence, why it would be younger people having this extremely rare reaction?
8: It's not yet clear why younger people have had this reaction. We know of other similar uh, drug-induced clotting states from other drugs, uh, one in particular called heparin, that sometimes younger people do get this complication. Perhaps there's a relationship there, but it is very early early to tell why it is affecting primarily young people in this case.
1: So why the age of 55 and above as safe for recipients of AstraZeneca?
8: That's a great question. So... I think they were balancing what they know based on the data available from Europe about the age groups of the people who are affected, so generally speaking, it was people in their 20s, 30s, and 40s, balancing that with the reality that we want to vaccinate uh, elderly group as much as possible to so the people who are above the age of 55. So they, they wanted to cut it off at some reasonable point. 55 is a sensible place to put that. It, it's nothing, it, you know, there's nothing magical about that number. It's just a sensible point to put that cutoff between where they think the risk is low enough Um, compared to the risk of acquiring COVID and that itself causing very bad complications.
1: Should you report any symptoms to your doctor? Uh, Because I am hearing um, from some colleagues and friends who've had it that they feel a bit under the weather and maybe even feverish for uh, for a matter of days.
8: Yes. So uh, when you get the vaccine, they will describe to you some of the side effects that are to be expected, which don't necessarily need to be reported, such as some mild fever, some headaches, some muscle aches, some um, sore muscles. But beyond that, yes, anything beyond that should be reported and they will advise you on what kind of symptoms you should be watching out for that might be more severe, Um, anything that's persistent for several days. The other thing, of course, is that you might actually have COVID itself despite just recently been having vaccinated because it takes a while for the vaccine to work. So always keep in mind for that. that If you have shortness of breath, fever, trouble breathing, anything like that, you should be reporting that because you could actually have COVID. Or go for a test, right? Exactly. Yeah.
1: Dr. Alan Vaisman, epidemiologist, infectious disease specialist at the University Health Network. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. Hatred against minorities is on the rise in our country. StatsCan has released the latest figures on police-reported hate crimes, which make up only a small percentage of these crimes. The numbers are for 2019, before the pandemic, which has made the situation much worse. Nearly half of all police-reported hate crimes in 2019 were based on ethnicity, with Black people the most likely to be targeted, followed by people of Asian descent. As we know, since the advent of COVID-19, which originated in China, hate crimes against people of Asian descent have skyrocketed, When religion is the motive behind hate crimes, Jews are most often targeted. While police-reported incidents show a decrease in hate crimes against Jewish people, an annual audit conducted by B'nai B'rith Canada reports a record number of anti-Semitic incidents for the fourth consecutive year. And the number of police-reported incidents against Muslims grew largely in Quebec. To discuss this important issue, Libby Nimer was joined on Wednesday by Michael Levitt, president and CEO of Friends of Simon Wiesenthal Center for Holocaust Studies, Dr. Mary Reed, assistant professor at the University of Toronto's Ontario Institute for Studies in Education, and Marva Wisdom, senior fellow at Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy, and founder of the Black Experience Project.
9: It is very disheartening that um, hate has risen so much, I thought after the George Floyd killing, uh, the empathy level of uh, right across the country, right across the world indeed, had risen where people recognized in their own vulnerability against uh, COVID-19 that the vulnerability that people feel Uh, through racism and anti-Semitism and and the attacks on persons because of their uh, color, creed, religion, or ethnicity, that that's not acceptable. And the vulnerability that these people feel was now being felt um, by uh, people at large. It is sad that as COVID-19 continues forward, uh, we see um, folks who are deciding that they need to find scapegoats and unfortunately i have to say that there's a leadership gap in addressing these issues because we know that there's a direct link between the rhetoric of those who are in positions of power who are in positions to be heard and covered by the media and and those who want to follow them and 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 become and feel as if they're victims themselves and that they have someone to blame
3: Dr. Mary Reed, and you're a member of the Asian-Canadian community, what is your thought? Like Marva, I'm very disheartened, but I'm not at all surprised. You know,
7: when we have a society with power differential, where people in power operate through a white supremacist framework, this is the result. And we have to stand shoulder to shoulder against all forms of oppression, whether it be racism, anti-Semitism, Islamophobia, and we need to stand united. It can't just pick and choose. And we have to realize that all forms of oppression are intertwined. And we need white folks to be standing shoulder to shoulder with us, because if it's just going to be BIPOC folks... We are so drained. We are so emotionally drained, and we're tired
3: and exhausted because of the harm that is being done to us on a day-to-day basis. Okay, let's bring in Michael Levitt. Your reaction to uh, uh, the statistics on uh, anti-Semitism, I guess, the oldest hatred? It's concerning.
10: Listen, it is absolutely concerning. Um, Hate against one of us is hate against us all. And as as both of the other guests have have, have so uh, well articulated, it does require us to all stand up, raise our voices against hate. And when we see the targeting of the black community or the Asian community in Canada, um, the Jewish community, all the others, it, it is absolutely necessary for us, not just to call it out, but for us to take action. For us to push for change, uh, in, in the work that we do at Friends of Simon Wiesenthal Center, um, education is the key. Education is the key. We're in classrooms every day, uh, and we can certainly get into more of a discussion about how we're approaching these issues because, um, you know, as Simon Wiesenthal himself said, freedom is not a gift from heaven. You have to fight for it every day of your life. And that is the message we bring through the lessons of the Holocaust to children, uh, to students throughout the country about how they, ha- how they can use that to empower the, uh, the, the fight against the, the, the racism that they face, the experience that they're having. Because, again, these things, um, they must be accounted for. And, of course, we're seeing, you mentioned it, Libby, the, 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 the pandemic has created a crisis. We know that during times of crisis hate rises. We know that the singling out of the other, you mentioned uh, anti-Semitism as the the oldest hate, and we often call it the the canary in the coal mine because we see it rear its ugly head in times of crisis. We know that this fight is happening every day, and we're certainly committed um, and engaged in working with other communities to make sure that we are doing all that we can.
1: Michael Levitt, president and CEO of Friends of Simon Wiesenthal Center for Holocaust Studies, Dr. Mary Reed, assistant professor at the University of Toronto's Ontario Institute for Studies in Education, and Marva Wisdom, senior fellow at Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy and founder of the Black Experience Project. I'm Jane Brown and you're listening to the Best of Fight Back. Coming up, what you had to say about the week that was and the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week.
0: You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Zoomer Radio, pulling no punches with the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Right back with Libby's
1: Nimer brings you comprehensive coverage of the news stories that interest you and your reaction to them on the phones. Here are some of this week's best calls. Pat in Toronto phoned about the Auditor General's report, which criticizes Canada for a slow response in the early days of the pandemic.
11: 90% of Canadians live within 100 miles of the U.S. border. It's the fact that the U.S. under Mr. Trump Dropped the ball. Be, that's the reason that we were behind as well. I mean, we look to the CDC and organizations like that to be on top of things. We are a very small country, so I don't think that we should be held responsible very much for this. I mean, this goes back to the U.S. The one thing, and I've raised it before, we need to get something in the free trade legislation to ensure that we don't get cut off from vaccines which are manufactured just west of um, Detroit. So, you know, and and if everybody thinks we're going to start manufacturing our own vaccines, I don't think you understand the costs and and you know, the magnitude of the burden that you're putting on us on the Canadian uh, taxpayer because it would cost probably 10 times as much if we were to get into the vaccine business.
1: Helen in Toronto phoned about the confusion around the AstraZeneca COVID vaccine. At
2: first, it was seniors who weren't supposed to receive AstraZeneca uh, because it was showing to, shown to have problems with them. Now it's the people who are younger. Why didn't they get it all straightened out before relief?
0: And now, Fight Back's Knockout Call of the Week.
1: There were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week comes from Daryl in Toronto, who phoned about the changing guidance on the AstraZeneca vaccine.
10: The idea that, you know, whatever they say from, from from day to day, I mean, I've been trying to tell people also, you know, take the AstraZeneca, get whatever you can as soon as you can. But it's it's, again, it's the flip-flopping back and forth. I yeah. mean, whatever statement you make today... I, I find myself following, well, you know, what's going to come up in three or four days. And it's, it just gives the sense that they really don't know what's going on with this particular one.
1: That does it for this week's Best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout call of the week, phone us noon to one weekdays. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca. Follow us on Twitter at Fightback Libby and call our Fight Back voicemail anytime at 416-367-9636. I'm Jane Brown. Join us again next weekend when we'll round up the best of Fight Back.
0: The Best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock and Z Paddy with technical production by Kelly Robotham. Executive producer Moses Nimer.